so we're talking about trying to stop you we're talking about origins and slavery of like men on horses with dogs trying to keep slaves from escaping right like that's that's right all the way back then all the way up through the civil civil rights rights movement and clearly now too because police dogs apparently have the right to bite you Thanks for listening to the Joy, Color, Impact, and Dogs podcast. Back with you today with another episode in our Dealing with Whiteness series. And today's episode, we're diving into the and dogs part of the show and exploring the intersection between dogs and racism. Kind of weird, right? (laughs) The timing of this episode is important because if you're listening when we release this, for the first time, there is a big trade show happening in Las Vegas called SuperZoo. And it's one of the big pet industry trade shows in the world and people come from everywhere to show up and exhibit and buyers come. It's a great chance for everyone to connect, buy, sell, etc. But having gone to these trade shows for over 15 years now, as an exhibitor and as a speaker, I've noticed it's a very, very, very white space to be in, which made me curious. I've also noticed and done a little bit of research to find out what the actual facts are, that there are a lot more white pet owners than black pet owners, which also got me curious. So I did a little bit of research and what I found is fascinating and to me was very surprising having so little education in the civil rights movement and the history between dogs and black people in America, as well as some really interesting questioning around the topic of can dogs be racist? So I hope you enjoy this episode. I think you might find it surprising like this series often is. And I think it'll make you ask some big questions as well about some of your own assumptions, maybe uncover a few of your own biases too especially if you're a dog person. So let's dive in. Hey guys, how you doing? Good, Good. how are you? Yeah, great. Back for another episode. Uh, I'm really excited for this episode because this is a question I didn't realize has been like rolling around in my brain for so long. But this episode is called, Why is the Pet Industry So White? (laughs) And the crux of our question today is, why are most dog owners white, first of all? And second of all, why are only 20% of dog owners black? And that got me asking some questions. So I went looking, right? Like, is this my imagination? Is just because I'm in such a white bubble? But, you know, I speak at these huge trade shows that are the biggest pet industry trade shows in the world in, you know, Vegas and Orlando and, and Europe. And there's no diversity. And if there is, it is certainly not black. <laughs> so, it, it did. It did force me to ask some questions, look up some statistics, and and see. You know, is this my imagination? Isn't it not? In the U.S., what we see statistically is that like sixty percent of pet owning households are white, non-Hispanic, and twenty percent, twenty-two percent are black, and that's a big difference, right? Yeah. So, like, there's got to be something to that. That's right. So when I start, I went looking. <laughs> there's not a lot out there about this topic. What I found was some great articles about the complicated relationship between Black people and dogs. And that is what I want to talk about today. I want to dive into your guys' personal experience. I want to talk about some of these articles that we found and get your take on them. 
and just kind of explore this topic about pet ownership as it relates to race. Mm, okay. Dope. That sounds good. Wow. It's off the beaten path. So I like it, right? Bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Justin, I want to start with you. I found out recently that you are a dog lover, right? You are a dog yeah. guy. Yeah. Huge. Since birth. Huge. Okay. So tell me about the dogs of your life. Wow. You sent, huh. you sent me a couple photos. So tell me about those dogs. So, uh, yeah. So in one of the photos, uh, there's a Japanese Akita named Nico. I believe I was around eight in that photo. That was one of my first few experiences where I really got to learn about dog behavior and, um, you know, just how to take care of a dog. Like I, I, I had dogs in my life that I was already close to and, you know, since a baby and stuff, but this, he was a very formative pup for me because I got to learn a lot about breeds and and how certain breeds act and things like that and so him being an Akita complicated um, very very <laughs> very complicated pup very interesting pup but um oh man he he was the best he was the best he you know absolutely huge just cuddle ball if he loved you and stuff so uh you know that that's the first one um the second one her name is Sheena She's the big wolf looking one. She's the big black wolf bear looking one. She looks terrifying, but absolute to sweetheart. I mean, wouldn't even bite at a butterfly, like the, the sweetest thing in the world. And she was a very, very interesting experience because anytime I walked her, people were afraid. They thought she was a wolf. They thought she was like, you know, like just this terrifying thing. And then as soon as you came up to her, I mean, she's just this, she's huge. So she's just this big ball of, I'm gonna cuddle up and cuddle you and love you and give you kisses and all this stuff. And so that was the first time where I really got to see barriers broken with certain breeds. And so I love Sheena, I miss Sheena to this day. I've got a picture of her in my room, absolute sweetheart. She, she was the best, I was about, 11 10 or 11 when she was in my life and she lived a long one so I, I definitely am thankful for that one and then lastly lastly we got my boy Fred my boy Fredo Fred, he's, so he's, good yep he's the pit bull that you'll see uh with my mom all cuddled up so he is I mean he is just me and a dog I mean I, I we got him he was abused severely I mean, cigarette burns on his mm. ears, one of his legs dangling off, you know, like hip problems and a whole bunch of stuff and not trusting, obviously, of anyone. So that he was the first pup for me. And I met him, you know, when I was in middle school and he's still alive now. So um, middle school is a very formative, you know, those are very formative years for a child, right? Like, you know, middle school, high school are very formative years for a child. And um, that's when a lot of stuff happens for kids, bullying or uh, feelings of anxiety and uh, a whole bunch of mental health stuff starts to come into question where you start putting language to it. And so Fred for me was, was therapeutic. Building that bond with him was therapeutic. Uh, I remember the first day where he truly felt even in his pain, physical and emotional comfortable with me so comfortable that literally in the middle of the night 
because uh, he always sleep near me and stuff. He lives at my aunt's house, by the way. He doesn't live here. We don't, they don't allow pets like that or they have to be a certain size. He's a pretty big pup, but um, literally crawls up onto me as I'm on the couch, rests his head right in front of mine. So he's breathing on me. And any time I tried to get up, it was this playful little herd, like, you better not get up. You better not get up because I just got here and you're not moving and I'm comfortable <laughs> now. So you better not get up. And I think every I, dog owner in the world can relate to that absolutely. not moving, to and not move the that, pet. That was it for us. That was it. You know, any any bad time I've had, you know, I just I'd go out there, see him and and he just lifts up my spirits. He's um he's a very misunderstood pup, you know, and I think, you know, because he's a pit bull, because he looks scary and I'm not going to lie, he's a bit of a dick. Um, but rightfully so right he's you know he earned it he earned it right absolutely but you know a bit of a dick but um I think that he's just a clear example of do the work to understand and you'll see something beautiful you know so there are certain people that you know we can't bring around him right and that we don't bring around him but um there are also some people who at first he might have had little spouts with but over time, as long as you gave him time, he's, he's snuggled up right next to you. He's, you know, going to be protective over you, um, as you know, dogs naturally are. And so I, I love pups. They've made my life. I can't wait to get, you know, my own, you know, on paper one day, my own, that is mine and that I can take care of every single day that's in my bed and stuff like that. But I'm, I'm very thankful for every dog that's been in my life because as a kid who's, bu- who's been bullied, who's gone through mental health struggles um, and is in therapy, I want to be clear, just because something is therapeutic doesn't mean it's therapy. Having this extra layer of comfort, of unconditional love, you know, there's nothing like a pup's love. So um, that, that's my story with dogs. And I just can't wait to literally grow up and have a farm and just have 20 of them running around and just listening <laughs> to my every command and just you know that's 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 my dream to have a pack so that's love me. it yeah now when justin says that lynn as his mother knowing you're going to be a part of his life forever like how does that make you feel going to the farm of dogs <laughs> oh i i would be so happy to see that happen for him he's always loved dogs they've always been a big part of his therapy of always, I felt guilty that we weren't, we lived in a place where he wasn't able to have dog growing up. And I'm really grateful to uh, his aunt Marcy that, uh, first of all, that they were so close and are so close and that she always had dogs and always, and he was always there. It was always spent a, a lot of time his entire life with her and the dogs and um, she had a house in Maine for a lot of years and they would go up there and be able to walk the dogs all the time. Play in the water, yep. So I I would love it. Now, how often I'll visit? I'll visit, but yeah, that would be, I think it would be great for him. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about your relationship with dogs because <laughs> I'm very curious. So from what I understand, you're not a huge dog fan. No. Not... I did not grow up with dogs. And in fact, my mom in particular was very emphatic that, you know, she was pretty clear. We were never going to have one. She didn't have one, didn't want one. Uh, and it's so interesting as I th- think about it, 
the only person that I knew that had a dog was my my aunt. My aunt Mary had a dog, had dogs, a couple of dogs throughout the years. And she lived with my grandmother. She's my dad's, one of my dad's sisters. And I didn't like that dog. And that dog didn't, wasn't friendly. I didn't have no good experiences with that dog. So it, you know. So the formative experiences were not positive. Sorry to laugh. I'm so sorry. It just didn't yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. So that just kind of cemented my view of yeah. dogs until, um, and, and in fact, they had to lock her up, you know, like when people would come over. So my view of dogs was that they were dangerous and that was pretty much it. And then Naeem turned out to be this huge dog lover. And in fact, actually um, Jabari as well, but Naeem for him, they, he grew up more. He was spent more time without Marcy than, in fact, uh, he. I don't. I guess he didn't have a picture, but uh, Marcy had a dog, Zena. Oh my gosh! And we're when we would go to Maine, you know, Naeem would be. I I I don't want to sleep with you. I want to sleep with Zena <laughs> and our Marcy. You know, and he'd just be all wrapped up under Zena, over Zena, whatever. And that was his. That was his thing. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful to the dogs in his life because I know that they absolutely played such a, a big part in helping him to feel safe and, and comforted and loved for just who he was or is. And now Fred, so this is an interesting thing. Oh, God. <laughs> so we I got a hugger for this one. <laughs> I got a hugger for this one. We have a picture of you and Fred. Yes. yes. I do not like And that's exactly why I chose it. So everyone at home, I, this is exactly why I chose it. I do not Sorry, like Fred. He started with a Warren. My husband had dogs growing up. All right. His dog was midnight. He loved it. Old stories about the dog. And he got along with all of Marcy's dogs, but Fred never liked him and Fred would bark him. So I'm like, wait a minute. Warren likes dogs and gets along with him and you barking at him, snapping at him. I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. Right. <laughs> I'm suspect right now. And so I would be tentative around, but he really liked me. And that has been my experience as an adult with dogs. They like me. And I keep going, I don't know why. I thought y'all were supposed to be smart. I thought you know when people like you and don't like you. What's the problem? They're yeah. trying to convert you, Lynn. Oh my God. I thought y'all were supposed to be smart. Oh, that is hilarious. <laughs> they all yeah, really they love, love me. They love it. So that picture was Fred. Yep. Fred really was there for me and really loved me. And, and as I said, his relationship with Naeem, was, it's just been beautiful. He, um, Naeem's through all his struggles. I can remember one time in particular when we brought him up to our Marcy's and, and he said to me when he came home, Fred usually sleeps with Aunt Marcy and he wouldn't leave my side. And it was a particularly difficult time for Naeem at that point. And, I just appreciated that, you know, Fred had that love and intuition that, no, he really needs me and I, I got to be here. So, so then I asked, have the question, okay, if you're that intuitive, why don't you know? Because <laughs> he knows he's going to convert you. He knows there's hope for you, Lynn. 
Get the smile on her face in that photo. You can't tell me that's not love between two parties. Between two parties, even for that snapshot. It is a beautiful thing. Okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> the last time I was there, so. he's the last time I was there, he snarled at me and snapped at me. So I have we are not on good terms. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. Again. Yeah. <laughs> If anything, I always got to walk in first. He's got to sniff me out first and make sure I don't smell like any other dog. That's the only time he'll snap at me. If I smell like another dog, oh, oof, he's not happy about that. Why are you you're about cheating it? on me. Right, you're literally, literally, you're cheating on me. But, uh, you know, but it's, it's just an interesting thing to me because I don't, I really have not, I didn't grow up with dogs. Even my mom's family is in the South, you know, where they had land, land and yeah. things like that. Yeah. And nobody had a dog. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's talk about why that might be. <laughs> Cause that does seem, you got a farm, you got a dog. Like that's yeah. what white people think happens, right? <laughs> um, it's really yeah. interesting because I found one article by a gal named Jashonda Sanders, who's based in DC. And I saw a couple of things from her. And, and one of the things she said really struck me. And she said that having a dog as a black person was a sweet and subversive gesture. Mm. And I found that really intriguing that it was in some way subversive. And she mm. spoke to a lot of the things you said, Naeem, about how therapeutic uh, the relationship with a dog can be and how actually when you're in a world as a black person in America where life is just hard <laughs> emotionally in particular that you know a dog can be this great bridge to you know better mental health and in you know you know a great source of love and also just from a scientific standpoint they're great for all kinds of happy chemicals right we give each other dopamine and serotonin and like so there's some science stuff behind that but she in the title of this article she said how becoming a dog owner helped her dispel internalized myths about black people and dogs and I'd love to chat about that a little bit. Like, what is your, what is your, even just from like what you've heard in your own family of origin or, you know, growing up or based on people, you know, like what would be your take on why it would not just be natural for um, someone with a farm in the South who is a black family to not have dogs? Yeah, well, it, it, it's interesting because in this, in, my family in the South did not have money either. Mm. So mm -hmm. to have to, mm -hmm feed a dog means that that's going to cost money. So that's one of the things. So there's a financial implication here. There's a financial implication. If you if you have children, then you're first, you're, you're barely feeding your children. If that, if, you know, if that's a financial situation for sure. you. And so in the South and in the North, right, if Black people did not have money, uh, when the welfare system came into play, it was often, I mean, we're already still to this day, there's always this uh, crit critics about why are you buying this if you're on welfare yeah. and the government's feeding. So how can you have a dog when you're on welfare? And well, and I read about that too. Like you weren't allowed to, you fundamentally weren't allowed to, and right. they'd come check your house, right? That's so right. I read a story about someone who hide the dog. Yeah. You have to hide the dog. You'd have to hide the um, whatever, like utility, you know, whatever extras, like an iron or whatever, like Yikes. extras you had because only certain things were allowed. But the other thing, the big thing that folks talked about when I was coming up is, you know, during the civil rights movement where the dog, what dogs were sit on us to bite us and 
that is traumatic that sticks in your mind, whether it was you that uh, were a part of that or whether you saw it or whether loved ones talked about it, that's trauma. And that absolutely is going to be something that's passed down in the community where, you know, Black people are an oral community. We, we talk anecdotes, we talk stories, we, you know, all of those things. And so to hear those stories and to say, you know, absolutely, we're not going to traumatize each other by having dogs, that's a, a part of it too. And then, uh, you know, this, there's a recent article, just the other day found an article about now they're uh, trying to make it illegal for dogs to police dogs to bite criminals. And it's just like, what, what, why would it ever have been legal except that it was legal to do anything to us, right? To stop us. So this whole thing about being subversive, right? Anything to stop us. And so now you're looking at actually trying to stop this from happening. So we're talking about trying to stop you. We're talking about origins and slavery of like men on horses with dogs trying that's to keep right. slaves from escaping, right? That's like right. That's, that's right. All the way back then, all the way up through the civil, civil rights. rights movement. And clearly now too, the, because police dogs apparently have the right to bite you. Right? That's just unreal. Well, me. and black people are criminals, Lynn. So, so, so right? whatever. But that's, you know, that's how that goes because- it's the same thing as, oh, he shouldn't have resisted. It's like, there is nothing that we can do, right? To defend ourselves, to make ourselves safe, to say uh, innocent until proven guilty. So stop treating me like I'm guilty. Like there's nothing we can do uh, that will convince a white- A dog not to bite you. That's right, that's right. <laughs> That, ha that has this dog or whatever, right? That we shouldn't be treated like this, right? Somebody who really views us in this way. And not, let me make it clear, I'm not saying every white person views us in this way, but you'd be surprised how many white people who think that they don't view us in this way, who will make that comment of, well, he shouldn't have resisted or why didn't he just do what they said to do? Right, that that's an knowing that. Right, that's right. Being that's in right. the aura, being in the general area of a police officer for a black person is possibly a death sentence. So, that's like, right. I that's would be right. running too. Like, that's I would be right. getting the hell out of there. That's right, and it's yeah. so interesting too because I can remember when the first time Naim was stopped by the police, and the, and we were talking about it in one of the on the matter of race classes, and they just started telling him, well, the next time, you know, you have this right, you can quote the, and it's just like, no, no. So you're missing the point here. <laughs> you can do that. Your white children can do that and not be seen as somebody who is resisting, right? Yeah, it took but everything, not, yeah. No, yeah. Son that it took I everything know better. I know better. It took everything in we me to not, different roles. to not say, you know, that is- These are my rights. Yeah, <laughs> like that's the not good advice. <laughs> like uh, my mom beat me to the punch. So I, I was just like, yeah. all right, cool. She she did it. But I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, that is not. And that comes from a place of meaning well, right? That, that Oh, yeah. Wanting to help, feeling bad, right. wanting to fix. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But not recognizing your white privilege in that moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. speaking yeah. of white privilege, this whole topic. Now, keep in mind, <laughs> this is so embarrassing. 
I've been working in the pet industry for almost 20 years. I am marketing faculty on the Victoria Stowell Dog Behavior Academy. Like I talk a lot about dogs. I know a lot about dogs. I talk a lot about dog training and behavior. This is the first time I had ever seen anything written or talked about that having police dogs is racist. Basically the way police dogs are used and the way they act is racist. And my first instinct was that can't be true. Is that true? So what did I do? I looked right. Like, because that was my, like how really, but there are some very startling statistics about this. One of them is that, and this is a quote from Jamea Drummond Bay, who is on. That's my girl, Jamea. Yeah. Oh, Jamea. Evolveteacher.com. So this is one of the things I found. And she said, after the shooting of Mike Brown in 2014, the department of justice investigated the Ferguson police department, they found that every single time a person had been bitten by a police canine, that person was African-American. Not most, Mm -hmm. all, Mm -hmm. all. And there was another one, I think in that article about California passing this law Mm -hmm. about, where's this one? Uh, Thinkprogress.org found that in the first half of 2013, Blacks and Latinos were the only ones bitten by police dogs. And in the 1980s, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department reportedly referred to young Blacks as dog biscuits. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. So that explains some and, of where we're at here. And you know, the, the difference in the lives that white people lead and the lives that we lead is, we look at that and go, yeah, I'm not surprised. You know, mm. none of it needs investigating. You might- Yeah, I'm shocked. Right? I have to right? go find the data. Right? Yeah. And you're like, of course, duh. That's life. And, you know, as much as I'm a dog lover, that doesn't surprise me either because I was, you know, I was taught my history, you know, so I know, mm-hmm. I know this, like, I know that they, uh, you know, their use and um, I don't, I don't think I've delved into why I love them. So like, I don't know, I don't know. It just is, a, I don't think it matters either, but it's like, but well, they like, probably got to you before you had you had the knowledge of yeah, the context, yeah. I mean, right? Oh, baby, I've had a dog around me. So like, that's very true. But like, do you, so I guess what I'm saying is like, do you think your feelings like are the reason that we haven't had one like in our house? No, it's really only because- The building, the right? Building. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, yeah the bu- our building is actually building so annoying about dogs. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting as well, because Pitbulls in particular, this is one of the things I have done a lot of talking and research on yep. is there's a tremendous amount of breed discrimination Yep. In particular, pit bulls, sometimes Rottweilers, Dobermans, um, yep. any of the quote unquote dangerous dogs. Aggressive dogs, yeah. Um, you often can't even get homeowner's insurance. So you mm-hmm. often can't even have them in your own home that you own. Mm-hmm. It's your house. Right, yeah. <laughs> and often you can't have a quote unquote dangerous dog. So there's yeah. a whole nother level of discrimination going on there. And, you know, that's based on t- statistics, but it's mostly because like the dogs that bite the most are dachshunds and chihuahuas, right? They're these little, tiny, horrific, little yeah. nasty assholes. Yeah. yeah, not my friend, not <laughs> no. my friend. It's but little if Fred chihuahua. were to bite someone, he might kill them. A dachshund never will. So what gets reported are the deaths, right? This pit bull ate a baby. Plus you have breeds like pit bulls who've been bred for dog fighting, then abandoned or taken to shelters, right? So they've led a horrible life as you've experienced with Fred, right? He's had so much trauma. Mm -hmm. He's got to learn to trust people again. It's remarkable they ever do given the things that have been done to them. 
most people are not prepared to have educate themselves exercise you know you know create the right safe environment for a dog like that so the chances of that dog having some sort of issue are much much higher than the average you know family lab which has not been bred and treated like that um so there's there's like a whole chain of events that that makes this true but i think that's such another and then there's also the um, one of the things that came up in the Jashinda Sanders article around, she was the one who was talking about the sweet and subversive gesture of having a dog. She was talking about DMX. And it was so interesting how she introduced him because she was like, you know, this was like one of the only examples I found of like a really well-known black man being all in on dogs. He's got the tattoo on his back. You know, he named the whole company after Rough Riders. He started barking in his raps. And then she, in the second paragraph was like, Okay, but don't 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 get it wrong. Like he had a dog fighting ring. They raided his house in Arizona and he had all these undernourished pit bulls. And I think there is something that happens with this, like I saw this a lot in California as well, with this um the glamorizing of the breed because yeah. it's vicious yeah. and and whatever, right? So there's certainly a lot of levels and a lot of comparisons we could make here. The thing I found the most terrifying about this whole thing was. I was reading um, an exchange that around in an article someone wrote on Medium, and she was featuring some tweets by a guy on Twitter who calls himself Black Aziz and Anansi. And he said in this long exchange with white people, so there was this whole thing. Do you remember in when it was in the news when people were trying to get married at these plantations? And people yes. are like, that is culturally insensitive. Yeah. You should yeah, not be yeah. getting married wow. in the home of slavery. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah. then he said, fine, I'm going to go get married where where Michael Vick had all his dogs, right? Like, if you're going to be disrespectful, so can I. So he came out with this tweet about getting married at Michael Vick's pool, basically. <laughs> and people went crazy, white people, of course. And so this conversation kind of went back and forth in this conversation around, like, the white people take on dogs and the black people take on dogs. And the thing I found the most haunting on this whole thing, and this was like December 2019, was the next thing he put out was basically saying, if you see a dog ripping into a black man, do you shoot the dog? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there was a couple of things that really disturbed me about this. Firstly, my own reaction, mm -hmm. which was, well, I need more information, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> Shit, yeah. what the fuck is that? And then secondly, reading the stuff, you know, all life is precious. It's not the dog's fault. Fundamentally, and this is the bit that really got me is like, I was reading all this and I was like, oh my God, there's another level of my shit. And second of all, also being in the pet industry where I've been surrounded for my whole career around like glorifying dogs. The second level, you know, people were talking about, you know, it's not the dog's fault and all life is precious. And it basically the same version of, I need to know more, right? Um, is this guy's life in danger? Like, do we have to kill the dog? Or is, you know, like that is my first reaction. But when I thought, okay, what if we, what if we switch that question around? And what if we say a dog is ripping into a white woman or a dog is ripping into a child? What is your initial response as a white person, right? It's like, you get the dog fucking off the person. Yeah. Right. No question. No that's question. the, no that's question. the immediate gut response. That's and that right. is terrifying. That's yeah. terrifying. Yeah. You know, can you name for me a white dog owner, P 
pit bulls uh, who did dog fights and illegal dog fights and was uh, horrific to dogs? Good question. I should look that up. I should yeah, follow so up the on fact that. that. You have to look that up. Can you yeah. give me a, the, a black one? Michael Vick. Well, the Michael Vick <laughs> is, is the only one I'm aware of and DMX. Yeah. And so here's the thing. Everybody's aware of Michael Vick. Yeah. You gonna tell me there's no oh, of course there are. people doing the of there same thing. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm saying. It becomes this whole thing when it's a black person, especially a black man, especially a black man who's doing well for himself, right? Because history, and I know a lot of y'all don't understand this, history will tell you that. Pull yourself up from your bootstraps. Buy your bootstraps is the message. And when we have, in history, historically, we have over 100 different towns. We don't know them all by name off the top of our tongue, but you research and you will know. When yeah. we have done really well for ourselves, by ourselves, white people have figured out some excuse to come in and burn it all down, kill all of us, or mostly all of us, including our children, right? So here's Michael Vick, and he's probably the most famous person for this, right, atrocity. But yeah, it's that, such a good point. That's intentional. That's it's intentional. such a good point. That's intentional. Absolutely. One and y'all, you can't either. That's no, I can't. And I was surprised actually. Out there. I was surprised that she was calling it out in this article because she went straight from DMX to Oprah. And it was like, <laughs> yeah, it was a really, it was an interesting, mm -hmm. it was an interesting part of the portrait that she was painting. Yeah. Well, she had to because they were going to come for her if she only presented that other mm -hmm. that side of mm -hmm. DMX, which is, you know, DMX is a great representation, very mm. complex person, as I believe that we all are. Of course. He had his own demons that he struggled with, but also tried to address and, and continue to struggle, very loving with his dogs, right? And so if she only presented that side, knowing the way that the world is, yeah, they would come for her. And that yeah. includes people of color too. Mm -hmm. uh, we're really good at uh, doing the, what do I would say, the, uh, the oppressive bidding toward one another mm -hmm. we're really mm -hmm. good at that uh and that's because we grow up under this system we all grow up under this system so we can turn on each other in a dime too simply because we know that that will gain us points or keep us safe or if that's what we think but the reality is as long as there's the there's white supremacy culture none of us are safe that's that's really the reality i mean there's so many layers there of my bias obviously there's so much, there's so much there in terms of history and what media is pitching us and the reality, you know, just the reality. But I think the, to put a point on that, that whole bit that we were just talking about, you know, it, the other thing that came up when I was looking into this is, you know, the signs that used to be everywhere of like, no blacks, no dogs. Mm -hmm. um, and in England, it was no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, there's, there's this sort of, thread of this whole narrative which is the comparison of the value of a life yeah. 
mm. right? Between a black person and a dog. Now we're saying the dog's life is worth more, right? In slavery, we're saying a black person is what three fifths of a person. Mm -hmm. How many fifths of a person is a dog, right? You've got this right. whole culture in America and the West right. now that a dog is a family member, right? It is basically a human being, not property. Right. And let's let's be let's tell the whole truth, y'all. The only reason we were even deemed three fifths was so that plantation slave owners could then count the amount of slaves in terms of being able to uh, to vote, to be able to to uh, look at property, right, and what its value was. So very so much a very much a marking a marking and um you know monitoring it wasn't because yeah. we were even thought made yeah. well yes they're less than and we'll give them three-fifths no it, it it's about capital it's a measurement yeah, yeah that's right. measurement. for wealth that's yeah that's right so 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 sick so looking at this question around the value of life between like, like one of the things that I thought about when I was thinking about this is I was thinking about when the, there was this, and I know about all these things because I just float in this world of all these people who own pet businesses and are crazy about dogs and whatever, you know, there's this huge outcry in the industry around the Yulin, the China, the Yulin dog festival in China mm. and how outraged Americans are that Chinese would eat dogs, let alone have a festival celebrating this process, mm. which in and of itself is so racist. <laughs> like, mm. like, who are you to say you can eat sheep and not dogs, or, you know, but right. setting that aside <laughs> for a minute, mm. where is the outrage where is the outrage for the Black Lives Matter movement or for like no one's going to those people fighting for the UN dogs and saying this just isn't appropriate. Um, if you could if you could, you know, put out maybe a, a survey or if you, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where is the, the outrage? Where where there's so many and I mean, I named so many and they all are painful to me, but Tamir Rice you know, is, is probably the most painful to me. Um, where is the outrage for that baby that didn't get but two seconds of a thought and the thought was he's dangerous. And on the call, it was literally said, I don't know if it's a real gun, but come check it out. Like, I don't, they literally said, I don't even know. But, but you should check it out. Right. So, right, two seconds, right? And his siblings were there who were younger. So we're talking babies. These are, I, these are babies. Care. These are babies. Don't even care. These are babies. So where's the outrage if it had been a dog shot like that? Oh, yep. my gosh. You know there would have been outrage. You absolutely Especially if that, that dog belonged to a white person. That's right. Absolute outrage. Yeah. And we definitely would have heard about that. Children were around. No, we would still be talking about that. <laughs> you know, we really would. Uh, and that is, it, it's so painful to me. It, it's beyond anything that I think anyone can comprehend who is not Black. But certainly, it's something that you can start to at least be thinking about. Uh, it's why we do the work of On the Matter of Race, because you can't keep being, uh, these things can't keep being invisible to you. You can't keep using this excuse 
right? You have to see what's going on. You have to understand, as you said, thank you, Nick, for being willing to say, look at this, my first thought, like this is in you, this is in us. Oh yeah. All of us, all of us, we all have healing to do. We all have, we all have work to do. Yeah. It's that simple. If we're one race, a human race, let's actually do the work and act like it. So. Yeah. Thanks for this conversation, guys. I think this is a this was a really interesting way to take another look at at you know this topic that is so complex and far-reaching that sometimes you feel like you can never see <laughs> you can never see the end of it, right? You can never see the yeah. edges. But this felt like an edge to me of like one of those things that probably white people are saying to you is not about race, right? Yeah. Like, oh, that's, that's right. not, that can't be about race. Like, of course it's, it's a not. class issue. It's a- Of course, yeah. Always about class. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, yeah, it, they just right. don't want to work. Oh, you right. know, it's I mean, like- It's just a simple not, yeah, thing. It's like, right. come on, bro. And that's why my response is all white. When somebody says, why do black people make everything about race? My response is always because it, everything is about race. It is. That's yeah. right. Don't prove me wrong. You can't. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is a great example of that. This is, it was a great journey for me to research this topic because, you know, I went into it genuinely curious without really knowing what I was going to find. And there was plenty, (laughs) but I'm really glad we've had this conversation because I didn't find anything sort of digging into it in quite this way. And I hope for the white people listening that this is possibly a little bit of an eye-opener of like, how do you respond to the question? What are your initial thoughts when I talk about the contrast between Black Lives Matter and the Yulin Dog Festival, right? There's gonna be a lot of pet lovers listening to this. And I think it will it will force some critical thinking and hopefully uncover a few new layers that you didn't realize were there. Um, so we can keep, keep having the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, can't wait. Yeah, thank you. All right, I'll see you guys next time. Okay. Awesome. <laughs>